The Braille Monitor, Volume 66, Number 4, April 2023. Gary Wonder, Editor. Distributed by email, in ink print, in Braille, and on USB flash drive by the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono, President. Telephone, 410-659-9314. Email address, nfb at nfb.org. Website address, http colon slash slash www.nfb.org nfbnet.org http colon slash slash www.nfbnet.org nfb newsline information 866-504-7300 like us on facebook facebook.com slash national federation of the blind follow us on twitter at nfb underscore voice Watch and share our videos, youtube.com slash nationsblind. Letters to the President, address changes, subscription requests, and orders for NFB literature should be sent to the National Office. Articles for the Monitor and letters to the Editor may also be sent to the National Office or may be emailed to gwunder, G-W-U-N-D-E-R, at nfb.org. Monitor subscriptions cost the Federation about $40 per year. Members are invited and non-members are requested to cover the subscription cost. Donations should be made payable to National Federation of the Blind and sent to National Federation of the Blind, 200 East Well Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230-4998. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. The National Federation of the Blind is not an organization speaking for the blind. It is the blind speaking for ourselves. Each issue is recorded on a thumb drive, also called a memory stick or USB flash drive. You can read this audio edition using a computer or a National Library Service digital player. The NLS machine has two slots. The familiar book cartridge slot just above the retractable carrying handle and a second slot located on the right side near the headphone jack. This smaller slot is used to play thumb drives. Remove the protective rubber pad covering this slot and insert the thumb drive. It will insert only in one position. If you encounter resistance, flip the drive over and try again. Note, if the cartridge slot is not empty when you insert the thumb drive, the digital player will ignore the thumb drive. Once the thumb drive is inserted, the player buttons will function as usual for reading digital materials. If you remove the thumb drive to use the player for cartridges, when you insert it again, reading should resume at the point you stopped. You can transfer the recording of each issue from the thumb drive to your computer or preserve it on the thumb drive. However, because thumb drives can be used hundreds of times, we would appreciate their return in order to stretch our funding. Please use the return envelope enclosed with the drive when you return the device. Convention Bulletin, 2023 A photo appears on the page, the caption, Hilton America's Houston Convention Center Hotel. There are plenty of reasons one might travel to Houston, Texas, the fourth most populous city in the United States. One might visit for the nearly three-week-long Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. The city's vibrant art scene boasts the largest concentration of theater seats outside of New York City. And no Houston resident would let a visitor forget that the city is home to the 2022 World Series champion Houston Astros. There is little question that Houston has a great deal going for it. The city's real draw, however, 
is that it will play host to the National Federation of the Blind's 2023 National Convention. It has now been more than 50 years since the largest gathering of the organized blind last convened in Houston, Texas, and our return in 2023 will be an event not to be missed. The Hilton America's Houston Hotel, 1600 Lamar Street, Houston, Texas, 77010, will serve as our convention headquarters hotel. Situated in the heart of downtown Houston, across the street from the beautiful 12-acre Discovery Green Park, the Hilton Americas is an ideal location for our annual event. Ballrooms, breakout space, and sleeping rooms are all stacked in the same tower housed on a single city block, simplifying navigation and minimizing travel distances. In-room internet is complimentary to all attendees, as is access to the health club and swimming pool on the 22nd floor. There are several dining options on the hotel's lobby level, including a Starbucks for those of you requiring a caffeine fix, and many more choices within easy walking distance from the Hilton's front door. The nightly rate at the Hilton America's Houston is $119 for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. In addition, the sales tax rate is 8.25%, and the hotel occupancy tax rate is 17%. To book your room for the 2023 convention, call 1-800-236-2905 after January 1, and ask for the NFB convention block. For each room, the hotel will take a deposit of the first night's room rate and taxes and will require a credit card or a personal check. If you use a credit card, the deposit will be charged against your card immediately. If a reservation is canceled before Monday, June 1, 2023, half of the deposit will be returned. Otherwise, refunds will not be made. We have also secured overflow space at the wonderful Marriott Marquis Houston. The Marriott is only a three-block walk directly across Discovery Green, or attendees can walk entirely indoors through the George R. Brown Convention Center, connecting both hotels on the second level. You will find many of the same amenities at the Marriott, as well as a Texas-shaped Lazy River Pool. The room rate at the Marriott Marquis is also $119 per night for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. To book a room, call 1-877-622-3056 after January 1. Again, ask for the NFB Convention Block. Similarly, the same deposit and cancellation policies apply. The 2023 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind will be a truly exciting and memorable event with an unparalleled program and rededication to the goals and work of our movement. A wide range of seminars for parents of blind children, technology enthusiasts, job seekers, and other groups will kick the week off on Saturday, July 1. Convention registration and registration packet pickup will also open on Saturday. Breakout sessions continue on Sunday along with committee meetings. Monday, July 3, will kick off with the annual meeting, open to all, of the Board of Directors of the National Federation of the Blind. National Division meetings will follow the board meeting that afternoon and evening. General convention sessions will begin on Tuesday, July 4, and continue through the afternoon of Thursday, July 6. Convention ends on a high note with the banquet Thursday evening, so be sure to pack your fancy clothes. The fall of the gavel at the close of banquet will signal convention's adjournment. Remember that, as usual, we need door prizes from state affiliates, local chapters, and individuals. Once again, prizes should be small in size but large in value. Cash, of course, is always appropriate and welcome. As a rule, we ask that prizes of all kinds have a value of at least $25 and not include alcohol. Drawings will occur steadily throughout the convention sessions, and you can anticipate a Texas-sized grand prize to be drawn at the banquet. You may bring door prizes with you to convention or send them in advance to the National Federation of the Blind of Texas at 1600 East Highway 6, Suite 215, 
Alvin, Texas, 77511. The best collection of exhibits featuring new technology, meetings of our special interest groups, committees, and divisions, the most stimulating and provocative program items of any meeting of the blind in the world, the chance to renew friendships in our Federation family, and the unparalleled opportunity to be where the real action is and where decisions are being made. All of these mean you will not want to miss being part of the 2023 National Convention. To assure yourself a room in the headquarters hotel at convention rates, make your reservations early. We plan to see you in Houston in July. Volume 66, Number 5, May 2023, Contents Important Note Moving forward, all the links in the audio braille monitor issues will be available at nfb.org slash monitor links. Illustration From a dream to really riding in an autonomous vehicle. A Welcome to Nebraska and Some Inspiration for Us All by Shane Burrish, Amy Burrish, and Jeremy Fifield. A Heartfelt Apology and a Chance to Start Again by Sheer Eckerling. After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller by Max Wallace, reviewed by Gary Wonder. Pedaling for Those Who May Think They Are Alone by Gary Wonder. Going My Way, Driving Accessibility Through Innovative Autonomous Transportation by Michelle Peacock. More about the Dynamic 2023 Convention by Norma Crosby. Hashtag NFB23, Give 20 Drawing. Ira provides Challenge Grant. Resolution Reminders by Donald Porterfield. How the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act has turned me into an impassioned advocate by Debbie Wonder. Back to Notre Dame, an address delivered by Mark Maurer. Monitor Miniatures. From a dream to really riding in an autonomous vehicle. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption. In this close-up photo, Mark and Anil smile joyfully as they lean toward the Waymo One vehicle. The Waymo One is a four-door, white, all-electric Jaguar I-PACE SUV that is equipped with cameras and sensors. Photo 2, the caption. In this photo, Mark and Anil stand smiling in front of the front passenger door of the four-door, white Waymo One vehicle. Their long white canes are crossed and President Riccobono is holding the National Federation of the Blind membership coin. President Mark Riccobono and Executive Director of Blindness Initiatives, Anil Lewis, visited our partners at Waymo in San Francisco in March 2023. On the bright sunny day, their visit included a ride across town in an autonomous car, the Waymo One. Anil shared, This is my first real autonomous experience, no one but Mark and I in the car. When it picked us up, it was like within a foot of the curb. It parked better than most people I know that drive. I think that this is really going to be a game changer. Through our partnership, blind people not only have something to gain from new technologies like Waymo's, we also offer valuable perspectives to contribute. Including us from the beginning helps make the experience better for everyone. The National Federation of the Blind and Waymo are partnering to include the feedback and suggestions of people who are blind in the development of Waymo's autonomous driving technology. Through its collaboration with us, Waymo has added accessibility features that let people receive added navigation details about their trip via audio find their vehicle by sound, and more. President Riccobono shared, Waymo, in particular, understands and values the fact that we have something to contribute, and Waymo has something to contribute, and that makes it a true partnership. A Welcome to Nebraska and Some Inspiration for Us All by Shane Burrish, Amy Burrish, and Jeremy Fifield. 
A photo appears on the page, the caption, Jeremy Fifield, Amy and Shane Burrish, holding their long white canes outside the International Quilt Museum. From the editor, Since 2006, Shane Burrish has been constructing audio openers for the NFB of Nebraska State Conventions. These offerings leverage historical events, figures or places, or highlight individuals or corporations which were begun in the various Nebraska host cities. These presentations use their stories to parallel the tremendous success the NFB has achieved both on the state and national level. This year, the opener was a collaborative effort by Shane, who wrote and voice recorded the text, his wife Amy Burrish, who researched and edited the script, and Jeremy Fifield, who edited and audio engineered the audio version. These individuals are all active members of the Lincoln chapter of the NFB of Nebraska. Not only is the presentation stellar, but it is a reminder that much happens in our state affiliates that just never makes it to the Braille Monitor so it can be appreciated by a nationwide readership and serve as an inspiration to all of us. Welcome to the 52nd Annual Convention of the National Federation of the Blind of Nebraska. We assembled this weekend in fellowship to plan for the equality, security, and opportunity we need. To inspire one another and demonstrate that in everything we do this weekend and throughout the year ahead, we are living the lives we want. Each of us in this room brings unique and valuable material to this convention. We are stitched together through the common thread of blindness. Though we represent a patchwork of unique and colorful histories, we join together because we realize that the Federation family tradition offers us a strength and comfort that we would not find with such warmth on our own. The largest gathering of the blind in the state this year is in this room, and rest assured that the National Federation of the Blind of Nebraska has you covered. Speaking of covered, the subject of this year's opener could do an excellent job of that too. It's a warm bed covering made of padding, enclosed between layers of fabric, and kept in place by lines of stitching, typically applied in a decorative design. You guessed it, the quilt. So steeped in tradition, so often assembled with love and support, that when you stop and think about its similarity to our beloved organization, the comparison is undeniable. Both the NFB and quilts were originally conceived to bring function and security to the members of the family. Both have lengthy histories and traditions. Both involve a high degree of specialized skills handed down through the generations with love. Like the work of the Federation, the making of quilts often evolved into social gatherings called quilting bees, which are still prevalent today. Such gatherings were mutually supportive and were largely attended by women and their daughters. They served to help break the isolation experienced by many and provided a supportive outlet for mentorship, strength, and encouragement. Many issues were discussed and advocacy campaigns launched. Within the environment of the quilting bees, everyone had a role to play. Working together, everyone came away with a treasured product. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Whether designed by artists, reflecting the social commentaries of the day, or assembled from uneven, rough-edged pieces, a good quilt held the common thread of pride for all. As we know, when function meets style, the result is a product worthy of unending legacy. Constructed with a common goal, strengthened by the richness and unique aspects of its individual pieces, 
The quilt offers a vibrant, personal piece of one's story. Encompassing all these aspects and more, the quilt has been commemorated in a place here in our very own capital city, the International Quilt Museum. Located on the University of Nebraska's East Campus, the museum boasts the largest publicly held collection of quilts in the world. Since its founding in 1997, they have assembled more than 9,000 quilts and 2,500 quilt-related objects, and they welcome more than 20,000 guests each year. Visitors are treated to a diverse and inclusive environment. Many stories are told there, and it's often said that the quilts speak for themselves. Like quilting, we the blind have a story to tell, which illuminates the power of our collective action. A story that uses our past to shape our future. We in the NFB are making plans for the Museum of the Blind People's Movement at our headquarters in Baltimore, Maryland. We'll enhance our standing in society by demonstrating our capacity and demystifying the misconceptions of blindness. We'll speak for ourselves and our patchwork history will be immortalized for the treasure that it is. As we work this weekend and on into the future, let us remember that each of us brings our own unique traits to a collective quilt that can warm and protect those who seek the truth about blindness. The successes and failures, triumphs and tragedies stitch us together across the common fabric of blindness. Whether you've gathered with us many times before, or it's your first time lending your talents to the work, we thank you for being here. This convention would not be the same without you. Action by action, stitch by stitch, we will build a creation worthy of function, sturdy enough for protection, rich enough to include us all, and worthy of our showcase within society as a whole. Like a quilt passed down for generations, we, the members of the National Federation of the Blind of Nebraska, stand together this weekend to say to one another, have no fear, my friend, I've got you covered. A heartfelt apology and a chance to start again by Sher Eckerling. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Sher Eckerling. From the editor. There isn't much I need to say because this letter says it all. I admire people who can say they are sorry and want to start again. I hope and believe this is a real step forward. Dear members of the Federation, My name is Sher and I am the founder of Accessibi. I am writing to address our past actions and to offer our deepest apologies for the way we previously communicated and reacted. I also want to outline what we are doing and have done to change and improve in response to feedback from Federation members and individuals in the broader disability space. Before I go further, I want to share with you that I have a deep personal understanding of what it feels like to be dependent on assistive technology. I am a person who relies daily on multiple assistive medical technologies due to my type 1 slash juvenile diabetes. My medical journey has been challenging at times, and thus I am driven by a singular conviction when it comes to my work and accessibility. I can personally relate to struggling with assistive technology, and this is one of the reasons it is essential for me to be the best ally that I can be to you. When I founded Accessibility, other than in the very technical aspects, I was a newcomer to the accessibility and disability communities. As software engineers, we incorrectly believed that the technicalities were all that we needed to know. 
When some community members voiced their concerns, my colleagues and I became defensive and resistant, and we mistakenly treated it with dismissal or, at times, even anger. As the founder of Accessibi, I want to take full responsibility for these reactions, and I wish to outline how, in the past two years, feedback from Federation members and many individuals and disability rights activists has guided me and Accessibi through a meaningful, transformative process. After several years of learning, and as I reflect on our choices during that time, I recognize that the way we reacted to concerns did not demonstrate my commitment to my conviction. Even though we failed to respond appropriately, we did hear you. We have been learning a lot from your feedback and have been changing our approach and how we do things because of it. For our improper reactions and responses, we want to express our deepest apologies to everyone who has been affected, and we are committed to responding with openness, gratitude, and accountability going forward. I also want to apologize for emphasizing our marketing on avoiding legal action when it should have been on making one's website usable to users who would otherwise be left out. We have many things to do until we get there, but I hope that soon you will trust us enough to call us your ally and bestow that honor and responsibility on us. I am committed to that goal and receiving all available guidance and learning to support that work. At the core of what we do is our belief that creating an inclusive environment for all individuals requires work from each of us individually and from us as a collective. As a company handling digital accessibility, it is our responsibility to work alongside you to demonstrate why it is so crucial for businesses to provide online access at all times, especially in a rapidly changing digital space. This is why we strive to provide solutions that make it easier for businesses, from the smallest family business to the biggest enterprise, to provide equal access and opportunities to all their users and customers with or without a disability. We want to provide businesses with tools that help them recognize that accessibility and usability are possible for them, and that even if they lack resources, providing accessibility will be a positive decision that drives their business forward. I am not writing this to advertise accessibility, but to provide background on what we are trying to do. I am writing this letter to ask you, Federation members, for a second chance to build a relationship with you. I am aware of your concerns about overlays, privacy and security, advertising, and more. Some of these concerns are addressed here, others are too complex for a short letter, and I wish to remain focused on the communication and people aspect, and on our commitment. I am, however, going to address these and any other concerns you bring to my attention as we move forward in our communication, conversation, and the work we put out to the world. Over the past two years, we focused on seeking guidance and training from disabled leaders, activists, individuals, and disability-led organizations willing to teach us where we fell short and what we needed to do to revise our approach. This work is ongoing. We took the time for a deep review and are making significant changes that include complete employee training, disability history, civil rights activism, disability justice workshops, and guidance on accessibility and disability communication. We are committed to building an inclusive culture from the core and to being directed by the disability community in the work that we do. We want disability to be present in all aspects of accessibility. Making significant changes takes time, and we understand that building trust is a lengthy process. We strive to continue learning and making further improvements that demonstrate our commitment as we move forward. The experience of every individual is unique. We cannot capture every perspective or understand every situation. Therefore, we will continue to learn and improve. Accessibility is not only about technology, but mostly about people, culture, and education. We are committed to inclusion both internally and externally. 
We are also committed to being transparent about our journey, and I want to begin by sharing our purpose statement. Link available at nfb.org slash monitor links. This 20-page document details the journey we have been on, delving deep into the changes we have made, and our focus for the future. We encourage you to read it to learn more about our efforts. Here are some highlights. Our marketing department has undergone a significant overhaul that encompasses communication, activities, and team structure. We have replaced our chief marketing officer and discarded previous campaigns. We have shifted our focus toward education, and our goal is to provide a platform for the disability community to reach our customer network and directly educate the business community without us speaking for or representing the community in any way, yet providing it an opportunity to educate millions of people and businesses directly. We are committed to supporting, elevating, and amplifying your voice and advocacy efforts. We strongly believe that educating people and businesses without disabilities, accessibility, and inclusion is crucial to creating an inclusive society. By offering individuals and businesses education, in cooperation with the disability community, we can collectively take steps toward bringing the digital world closer to where we all want it to be. We recognize that web accessibility is not a one-size-fits-all process. Therefore, today, our approach is to provide a variety of accessibility tools and solutions to help businesses address accessibility comprehensively. We are creating an ecosystem of tools, services, products, and educational platforms for businesses of all sizes to develop and implement inclusive business practices and successfully incorporate web accessibility in their projects. We also provide comprehensive accessibility services, including human audits, accessibility consulting, technical accessibility training, user testing, and ongoing support to ensure that accessibility is maintained over time. We are incorporating talented professionals from the disability community and their expertise into every aspect of our company. Everything we do is made with, and often by, a person with a disability in the process. This is true from research and development to the way we deliver services, build products and solutions, and come up with campaigns and communications for businesses and customers. Every layer of accessibility relies on leadership and talent from people with disabilities, including input, education, guidance, and review. As the founder of Accessibility, I have a responsibility to lead by example. I am committed to listening to your feedback and concerns and to taking actions that reflect that. I am also committed to being accountable for our reactions and to being a part of the solution. For that reason, I want to offer a direct line of communication with me for your concerns or questions. Please do not hesitate to email me directly at ekshir at accessibeaccessibe.com. We have a long way to go, but we are committed to making the necessary changes and doing better. We believe that accessibility and inclusion are critical foundational components of society and should therefore be essential and achievable for businesses of any size. We must create resources, solutions, and services that support this goal while providing the best user experience to each person. We look forward to working with you on creating a more accessible and inclusive future for everyone. Sincerely, Sure. After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller by Max Wallace Reviewed by Gary Wonder A photo appears on the page, the caption, Gary Wonder. Grand Central Publishing, hardcover, 416 pages. ISBN 9781-5387-07685. Available on Kindle and Audible.com. In June of 2018, readers of the Braille Monitor were treated to an excellent article by Kane Brolin, 
He wrote on the 50th anniversary of the death of Helen Keller, and his message was the first that many of us had seen suggesting that she was more than the result of a miracle worker. She was a highly articulate human being who managed to be present on the world stage, though she had no memory of hearing or vision. Recently, I was asked if the Braille Monitor would be interested in reviewing a new book, After the Miracle by Max Wallace. I recommend the book for anyone who believes that blind people should live the lives we want. Mr. Wallace emphasizes that too many people have been happy to view Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller as the miracle worker and the recipient of the miracle. This is not the book one reads to be comforted by the oft-repeated portrayals of Helen Keller's miraculous achievements. The author reveals that some of her expressed beliefs were, and still are, controversial. At various points in her life, she embraced communism, eugenics, women's suffrage, and socialism. Helen Keller was highly critical of the way black people were treated both here and abroad. She was an outspoken critic of the beliefs, held in her native South and in the North as well, that black people were inherently inferior and unequal. Today most of us see what she had to say as a basic truth. We might assume that this truth has always been obvious, though many chose to ignore it. But the South, and particularly her home state of Alabama, soon became a place Keller seldom dared to visit. This was something of a good thing for Keller's relatives, who felt it necessary to separate themselves from her views, whether that separation was based on conscience and observation, or simply on not wanting to spoil the nests in which they lived. One of Keller's more controversial views was that war was usually motivated and fought based on economic interests rather than moral values. She admired those who fought and even appreciated the need to fight if the issue demanded it, but she did not support our entry into any war that happened in her lifetime. Keller's livelihood depended on being gracious to rich people and soliciting their donations. However, the reality she saw made her believe that there was too great a distance between rich and poor and too little opportunity for real education for the deaf and the blind. She concluded that poverty might be a more important factor in life than any specific disability. The American Foundation for the Blind often uses Helen Keller in its advertising. It celebrates her fame and takes credit for many of her worldwide travels. This book argues that, for all the compensation Helen received from the Foundation, the Foundation was by far the greater beneficiary of funding and publicity as a result of that association. It also argues strongly that the AFB sought to downplay and even suppress the publication of Helen's views on war, the economy, civil rights, apartheid, and a number of other issues that the Foundation feared would interfere with its fundraising and its work on behalf of the blind. Wallace refers to conversations in which the Foundation discussed severing its relationship with Ms. Keller and parts of letters in which they went to great pains to assure prized donors that their donations would not go to the causes to which the donors objected. Wallace sadly observes that one of the distressing aspects of coverage frequently given to Keller is that some of her controversial views were dismissed by friends and foes as the consequence of her disabilities. People assumed that, no matter how respected she was or accomplished she seemed, she could never fully grasp the complexity of the world. People often assumed she had been duped into her controversial opinions by those who should have served her better. Many were convinced that a certain innocence and naivete are intrinsic to the lives of disabled people and especially to a woman with multiple disabilities. I find this explaining a way of Keller's views particularly deplorable, considering similar experiences I have had with my own parents and siblings. At times they have argued I cannot have a balanced view of issues around race because I cannot see the way they behave. If I could, they assume that my views would be far closer to their own. Blindness is the issue, not the breadth of my life experience and reflection. 
Whether you find yourself agreeing or disagreeing with Keller's views, this is a fascinating and enlightening book. The quotations that appear portray Keller as someone who was observant and introspective. She was not afraid to challenge the views of those around her, even when she and Annie Sullivan suffered financial consequences. Certainly, there is some wisdom in the quotation, Whose bread I eat, his song I sing. Helen Keller did her best to live beyond the miracle and to show that she was more than the walking, talking embodiment of innocence, seeking light for the blind and sound for the deaf. The book is available on Audible and at the link available at nfb.org slash monitor links. Pedaling for Those Who May Think They Are Alone by Gary Wonder A photo appears on the page, the caption, Dan O'Rourke and Mark Riccobono smile and hold their NFB member coins. Dan O'Rourke is a man on a mission. As a veteran NHL hockey referee, he's used to skating on thin ice, making tough calls, and taking a few hits along the way. His latest challenge, Route 66 Ride for Literacy, is a bit different. Instead of donning his skates and whistle, he's hopping on a bicycle and setting out on a cross-country journey to support a cause that's near and dear to his heart. Dan is riding down Route 66 to raise money for our organization. His father, Tom, is blind from RP, retinitis pigmentosa, and has been the inspiration for the ride. Dan wants blind children to know that they are not growing up alone and that they have adult role models who have faced challenges similar to theirs. As someone who has grown up with a blind parent, he knows firsthand the struggles and obstacles that blind people face, and he wants to do his part to make a difference. Dan's father always thought that denying blindness was a sign of strength and the best way to cope with blindness. The positive side of this is that he did everything a father and provider was expected to do, never letting blindness define him. Dan has taken a slightly different tack on how to deal with blindness. He is convinced that working with other blind people can add strength to one's character. By accepting a shared characteristic with others, he believes we can jointly develop and live out coping strategies that can determine whether blindness is an inconvenience or a tragedy. His reasons for choosing the National Federation of the Blind are clear. He believes that our goals are closely aligned with his own. They aim to help people live the lives they want, support those who may feel alone, and look for ways to avoid reinventing the wheel. All these goals are close to his heart, and he hopes that his ride will inspire others to follow in his footsteps. Dan has been athletic all his life, and cycling has been a part of that. He's completed numerous charity events over the years, but this one is different. This time, he's cycling, and now for a cause that's personal. He's willing to push himself further than ever before to make a difference. Dan met his wife and life partner, April, when he was just 20 years old, and they've been together ever since. She's his biggest supporter and is traveling with him on the journey. Their love story is one of mutual support, understanding, and acceptance, and they use their own experiences to help others who may be going through struggles. Dan's parents, Tom and Janice, are both 75 years old, and they're incredibly proud of their son's efforts. They've been supportive of his career in his personal life, and they're thrilled that he's using his platform to make a difference in the lives of others. His journey down Route 66 will begin around the 26th of July and is expected to end around September 7. These dates are deliberately vague because no one can predict the weather or the mechanical difficulties he may encounter. This 2,400-mile ride will take him through towns where we have chapters, and the hope is to let folks meet him, let the communities through which he passes know about his work, and to remind them that their city has a branch of the premier organization of blind people in the world. What Dan is doing will be more than just a 2,400-mile bike ride. It's a testament to the power of hope, passion, and determination. 
By sharing his own story and raising money for a worthy cause, Dan is proving that even the smallest actions can make a big impact. He hopes his ride will inspire others to support causes that are important to them and to encourage them never to give up on their dreams and aspirations. As he pedals down the road, he expects to be reminded of the beauty of life, the importance of family, and the power of love. These are values he sees in the National Federation of the Blind, and together we will write another important page in the history of the blind as we continue the journey to living fulfilling lives in which blindness is but one of many characteristics. We need your help. Very soon after I went blind, I went to my first convention of the National Federation of the Blind. Though as a six-year-old, I was not scared about my future as a blind person. Learning about the NFB and going to conventions showed me tons of independent blind people who I could look up to, real-life superheroes that I could aspire to be like. Abigail. Blind children, students, and adults are making powerful strides in education and leadership every day across the United States, but we need to continue helping kids like Abigail. For more than 80 years, the National Federation of the Blind has worked to transform the dreams of hundreds of thousands of blind people into reality. With support from individuals like you, we can continue to provide powerful programs and critical resources now and for decades to come. We hope you will plan to be a part of our enduring movement by including the National Federation of the Blind in your charitable giving and in your estate planning. It is easier than you think. With your help, the NFB will continue to give blind children the gift of literacy through Braille, mentor young people like Abigail, promote independent travel by providing free, long white canes to blind people in need, develop dynamic educational projects and programs to show blind youth that science and math careers are within their reach, deliver hundreds of accessible newspapers and magazines to provide blind people the essential information necessary to be actively involved in their communities, Offer aids and appliances that help seniors losing vision maintain their independence. Below are just a few of the many tax-deductible ways you can show your support of the National Federation of the Blind. Lift Roundup By visiting the menu, choosing Donate, and selecting the National Federation of the Blind, you commit to giving to the National Federation of the Blind with each ride. Vehicle Donation Program we accept donated vehicles, including cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, or recreational vehicles. Just call 855-659-9314 toll-free, and a representative can make arrangements to pick up your donation. We can also answer any questions you have. General Donation General donations help support the ongoing programs of the NFB and the work to help blind people live the lives they want. You can call 410-659-9314 extension 2430, to give by phone. Give online with a credit card or through the mail with check or money order. Visit our Ways to Give page at https colon slash slash nfb.org slash give. Pre-authorized contributions. Through the pre-authorized contribution, PAC program, supporters sustain the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind by making recurring monthly donations by direct withdrawal of funds from a checking account or a charge to a credit card. To enroll, call 877-NFB-2PAC or fill out our PAC donation form, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash PAC. Plan to leave a legacy. The National Federation of the Blind Legacy Society, our Dream Maker Circle, honors and recognizes the generosity and imagination of members and special friends who have chosen to leave a legacy through a will or other planned giving option. 
you can join the DreamMaker circle in a myriad of ways. Percentage or fixed sum of assets. You can specify that a percentage or a fixed sum of your assets or property goes to the National Federation of the Blind in your will, trust, pension, IRA, life insurance policy, brokerage account, or other accounts. Payable on death, POD account. You can name the National Federation of the Blind as the beneficiary on a payable on death, POD account through your bank. You can turn any checking or savings account into a POD account. This is one of the simplest ways to leave a legacy. The account is totally in your control during your lifetime, and you can change the beneficiary or percentage at any time with ease. Will or Trust If you do decide to create or revise your will, consider the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary. Visit our planned giving webpage, link available at nfb.org weblinks, or call 410-659-9314, extension 2422, for more information. In 2022, our supporters helped the NFB send 371 Braille Santa and Winter Celebration letters to blind children, encouraging excitement for Braille literacy. Distribute over 3,000 canes to blind people across the United States, empowering them to travel safely and independently throughout their communities. Deliver more than 500 newspapers and magazines to more than 100,000 subscribers with print disabilities, free of charge. Give over 700 Braille writing slates and styluses, free of charge to blind users. Mentor 207 blind youth during our Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy. Award 30 scholarships each in the amount of $8,000 to blind students. Just imagine what we will do this year and, with your help, what can be accomplished for years to come. Together with love, hope, determination, and your support, we will continue to transform dreams into reality. Going My Way, Driving Accessibility Through Innovative Autonomous Transportation by Michelle Peacock. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Michelle Peacock. From the editor, here are the remarks President Riccobono made in introducing a wonderful presentation on the future of self-driving cars, something that got a big cheer from everyone in the hall when introduced. It appeared on the afternoon of July 10 at our national convention in New Orleans. Uh, from the beginning of uh, the work on our Blind Driver Challenge, we have used it as a platform to talk about access to all stages of the work being done in this country on, well, really around the world on autonomous vehicle technology. The Federation has participated with autonomous vehicle companies all over the world. Um, and more and more of the leaders that are working in the autonomous vehicle industry have come to uh, understand and prioritize our message of equal access. Waymo is one of the key companies in this emerging industry, and our next speaker is their global head of public policy. Her career has centered on building and growing government relation programs for large, small, established, and startup companies in fields like financial services, high tech, and transportation. And we're proud 
to have her company as a partner in our work to transform accessible transportation options for blind people. Here's Michelle Peacock. Uh, <laughs> I'm Michelle Peacock. It's great to be here today. Um, what an amazing time this has been. This, this whole convention has been spectacular. I've met so many great people. Um, I want to give a shout out to my new best friend, Sailor Cooper from Houston. Yeah, thank you, Sailor. Um, and it's just, it's just been amazing to, to meet so many cool people like Sailor today, earlier today. So let's talk about Waymo. Um, Waymo the words stand for a new way forward in mobility. We are an autonomous driving technology company with a mission to make it safe and easy for people and things to move around. So fully autonomous technology holds the promise to improve road safety and offer mobility options for millions and millions of people. Waymo is building the Waymo driver, which is our proprietary fully autonomous driving system that is applied across two lines of businesses. Waymo One, our fully autonomous ride-hailing service that's now operating in the Metro Phoenix area, and Waymo Via, which is focused on all forms of commercial goods delivery, including heavy-duty trucking and local delivery. Now, I was asked this question earlier today, which is when can I buy one of these Waymo cars? And Well, the answer is you're not. Um, we don't manufacture cars to sell to the public. Uh, the cars that we are operating in San Francisco are beautiful Jaguar Land Rover I-Paces. So what we are doing is operating a fleet of these AV cars and heavy-duty trucks equipped with this driver. And since safety is at the heart of everything that we do, we think this can help improve road safety. Our company is building the technology using these fleets of cars to be able to provide mobility options for people without the need of having to buy this car. So we are the most advanced and experienced AV company with over 11 years of experience in autonomous vehicles. In 2009, we started as the Google self-driving car project. And in 2011, we began to develop our own hardware and sensors in-house. Um, there's nothing on the market that could deliver this full autonomous capability. In 2015, we completed the world's first fully autonomous ride on public roads. This was in Austin, Texas, with our friend Steve Mann, who was blind. And in 2020, we launched to the public the world's first fully autonomous commercialized ride-hailing service in Phoenix. And right now, we have expanded our testing of Waymo One in San Francisco. So as I said, we believe that this Waymo driver has the ability to dramatically improve road safety because it's always paying attention. It's always paying attention to the roads. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't get distracted. It's not yelling at the kids in the back seat. It's not spilling food down the front when they're eat, trying to eat or, as I am prone to do, trying to find a Dua Lipa on the radio. So today, I'd like to share you a little bit more about our accessibility vision, 
um, because we think that the promise of AVs holds so much uh, for accessibility. And we're going to focus on Waymo One, which is our raid hail service. Now, as I said before, because we own our fleet, we are uniquely positioned to add accessibility features into our product in a way that the manually operated ride hailing companies just can't do. And that's significant because we believe the benefits of AVs will be brought to the market, to consumers and to the public through shared ride hailing before they reach drivers via personal car ownership. Introducing these features through our Waymo One ride hailing service will mean more riders will benefit from them sooner than they otherwise would. And our philosophy here is completely aligned with the National Federation of the Blind. Our efforts to build inclusive technology and an inclusive user experience is just completely uh, aligned with what we're trying to do here this weekend. Um, collaboration with this community has helped us find areas for improvement in our product that make AV rides more accessible, and in doing so, it raises the bar for the user experience for everyone. We're proud of this work, but in addition to that, I'm really excited to share that we've recently expanded our partnership and are collaborating with NFB on accessible infrastructure legislation in Congress that will advance our joint missions. Waymo has had a long-standing relationship with the blind community. Our Let's Talk Autonomous Driving campaign highlights the benefits of autonomous driving technology for people who cannot drive, and including organizations like Foundation for Blind Children, Lighthouse for the Blind SF, and World Blind Union. And in a minute, I'll talk you through the different ways we've designed our app for accessibility. But before I do, I want to stress two things. First, we know that we're not done. We understand that our service is a work in progress, and there's more that we can do to meet our riders' needs over time. And we've heard from the community loud and clear, nothing about us without us. So we want to make sure, yes, let's have that applause. There we go. We've heard from the community um, that this, this not, nothing um, about us without us, and we've definitely put that into practice. And so we want to make sure that we are engaging with all of you on this process, collecting feedback, and using it to constantly improve our service. And then the second thing I wanted to point out is that this spirit of inclusive design actually benefits all of our customers. On several occasions, we've built inclusive design features and have found that, that those that were ostensibly built for the disabled community have been things that improve the user experience for the entire business. All right, so let's talk about these inclusive design features in Waymo One. So these include um, the option to minimize walking time when ordering a trip, turn-by-turn -turn walking navigation, the ability to honk the car's horn remotely, and the option to contact rider support. So to ensure our service is accessible for riders with various needs, we have taken two broad approaches to developing these features. So first, we've conducted user research with these riders. We've had them use our app, take rides in the car, talk to the support team. Uh, this in inevitably identifies opportunities for improvement, which are then added to the product development. And second, we've gathered feedback from internal riders that have disabilities. These are people with our sister company, Google, 
who have disabilities and we get them in the car and get really valuable direct feedback from them as well. And there's an also important to highlight the role that NFB played in helping us develop this technology. When we first started autonomous driving in Chandler, Arizona in 2017, NFB was invited to be part of our trusted tester program where blind riders could experience AV rides and give us very specific and very direct feedback about their experience. And that has been tremendous treasure trove of information to help us perfect, to perfect the offering that we have. So let's turn to the user experience of Waymo One, and I can tell you a little bit more about these features. So once a new user has um, onboarded with us, the writer can use the app to navigate to the accessibility settings. So I'll highlight a few of these settings and walk you through this experience. So first, the, the user orders a car using the Waymo One app. And the app is legible by a screen reader, which allows the blind users to navigate by hearing labels and buttons read out loud. And then um, what happens after that is the pickup process. And you know this, this also creates some challenges. From time to time, a writer might experience some competing factors at pickup or drop off. And it would often involves balancing two things, a safe area to meet the car with a pickup but that it might take a longer walk to get there. And so Waymo makes sure the rider is alerted to this situation as it happens and gives them the tools to help locate the vehicle. For example, we provide pickup and drop off warnings for long walks before the trip is even ordered. So a rider, if they decide that's too far to walk, they can decline the ride if it doesn't work. And at the end of the trip too, we can tailor information for specific scenarios like providing more details when a drop-off is in a parking lot. Um, but this limiting the walking is a big focus for us. And so to do that, under the accessibility settings, users will find a feature called minimized walking time. And here's how it works. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, cars sometimes make these trade-offs to give riders more walking time, but a shorter overall trip journey. So for example, if a Waymo vehicle uh, maybe needs to circle the block to pick up a passenger, it may instead decide to stop on the opposite side of the street to limit the time to pick up. But this behavior of the car might have a disproportionately negative impact on blind users. So the passenger instead might request that the vehicle go ahead, circle the block, and come exactly to where I am standing so it doesn't, that person doesn't have to cross the street, and this feature allows them to do that. <laughs> Um, and another feature is rider, we call it rider-only matching. So when we talk about these fully autonomous cars, our shorthand is rider-only, meaning there's no driver in the car. So when a user orders a ride, we alert them to the fact that it, this ride may be rider-only with no driver present before it arrives. And it provides additional information, like a list of 10 things you need to know about this ride. And if the user isn't comfortable with rider only, or they need, actually need a person to help them, um, they can give, give, give them a tool so they can notify, to, notify us or cancel the ride. We have also added some new tools to help the rider locate the vehicle. Um, first is the vehicle ID. So this helps people with lower vision who can see color or a few bright letters from far away rather than the license plate. So with this, we highlight a two-digit ID number at the top 
of the car as an, L as an LED, and it can be customized by color. Um, right now, often in San Francisco, it, you'll see it flash up the initials of the person who ordered the ride. So I, when I take rides in San Francisco, I look for the cars that say MP because those, that's the one for me. Um, and this helps everybody. I use it all of the time, um, not just those who have disabilities to more easily find their car. And another new tool is the honking the horn. So I have used this tool also, where you can use the, from the app, you can just press a button and it will honk the horn. Um, th thank you. Um, it's a, it was, again, designed for blind individuals, making it easier to find the car when there isn't a person behind the wheel to call. Um, but again, this is a, a great benefit, and I use this all the time, and not just because it's funny, but I use it to actually find the car, too. Um, in San Francisco, there's a lot of these cars on the street, so it's nice, really helpful to find them when you need to. And then inside of the car, once the rider's in the car, we've added other settings that help uh, provide assistive audio. So these are tools that help visually impaired riders get context about what's happening in the car. So for example, the, the vehicle will tell riders when it's yielding for a pedestrian or stopping at a traffic light, just to give riders comfort to know that the car is on track and the ride is continuing as expected. <laughs> I like the cheers, but I will say this is a tool we built for inclusivity, but actually everybody likes this. My husband and I were in a car recently. He's like, this is so cool. I know exactly what's going on. And uh, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous benefit for everyone too. Once in a while, things don't go as planned on these rides, and that's where our rider support team can step in and helping us be prepared for the unexpected. So once in the vehicle, we have live rider support team just one tap away. They're available in the car and also um, from the app. Um, for example, rarely the Waymo vehicle may need to come to a full stop when it doesn't know how to proceed. There may be debris in the road that they can't identify or get around. In those scenarios, a member of the Waymo roadside assistance team will join the ride, take over control, and complete the trip. And we want to make sure we're effectively communicating about this for everyone who is taking the ride. In addition to the internal screen of the car that where we show what's, what's happening, um, we also provide audio announcements as well as talk to riders through the event. A rider support team will also call in, providing a high-touch experience that explains um, to the rider what's happening and answer questions and describe what will happen next. We're very proud of these features that are available in the car and in the app today, um, but there is even more ahead of us. Uh, for Waymo is a participant in the U.S. Department of Transportation Inclusive Design Challenge. So this, this is a very exciting uh, project that we've been involved in too. It's sort of uh, taking what we've done, the OG features, and bo boosting them up even more. Um, so as I shared with you today, we have come a long way since 2011 in developing this technology, and this is really just the beginning. Um, we are so excited to have been selected as a semi-finalist in the US DOT Inclusive Design Challenge. <laughs> And this challenge seeks to help, help us develop new solutions for people with needs um, to make use of autonomous vehicles to access jobs and healthcare and other critical decisions. And so through our user research and feedback from writers, are you hearing a theme? 
and, and uh, developing this fully autonomous technology, we've learned that one of the largest challenges for low vision riders is finding the car at pickup. So this research has formed the heart of our challenge submission. And after being selected as a semifinalist in January 2021, we have moved on to stage two, which is where we are now. So fingers crossed. Um, in stage two, our team prototyped additional accessibility features um, beyond those that we've just talked about, and they will include adaptive app navigation, visual, audio, and haptic clues, uh, cues to navigate to a vehicle, purpose-built car sounds for wayfinding, locating with headlights, and hands-free car communication, and also video chat support. So in total, we developed features that fell into 11 different categories, all aimed at improving accessibility. I love all the woo. That is great. <laughs> so one area of focus, as we talked about, is wayfinding. And our proposal included using creative speech, um, such as explaining the position of the Waymo vehicle by noting verbally things like, the car is 15 feet away from you as the crow flies. But using language, the everyday language, to help people navigate to where the car is. And we also um, include purpose-built sounds that help people engage more effectively with the app and haptic vibrations, um, where we use like a hot and cold approach that users can alert users to where, when they're getting closer to the car. Some of you may have used the Apple Watch and it'll vibrate when you're making turns for navigation. And in this way, we'll use something similar to be able to tell you you're getting warmer, you're getting colder. And earlier, I also mentioned, as you remember, my fondness for the horn honking, because it is pretty fun. Um, but one of the challenges, as you might imagine, is that the horn honking on the Waymo car sounds a lot like a lot of other cars' horns honking. And so through this challenge, we designed a custom horn sound different than the standard honk. Uh, just, it's, uh, I've listened to a couple versions of it. One is that has this distinctive, like a trill sound, like a high-pitched, pretty trill sound. And another one is like this lovely, like melody that just plays, but it's just it's very bright and, and a cheerful uh, melody. So you would know when you hear the sound that that is the Waymo car and not a different car that might have a similar horn that's honking. Um, we also think this will benefit people who are not at all interested in riding in AV cars, and those are bystanders who might not like this idea of additional horn honks in these uh, dense urban environments. So this sound feature could um, also potentially be engaged more proactively by the car. So if you imagine a scenario where someone, a, a blind user of Waymo, is trying to find the car, but they've got stuff in their hands. They're maybe holding a cane or groceries or a child or something. It might be not easy to pull the phone out and engage with the phone to be able to press the button to have this noise made. So we are working on finding a way to have the car recognize that the user is just close and then send the signal itself so that the person would be able to find the car. So we're very excited about this challenge. Um, we should have the outcome with the winners announced any day now, and we're really hopeful to win. So all of you send your good vibes out there to the USDOT. So this has been an, a, an amazing, amazing um, opportunity for us. We love the partnership with um, 
with the organization. And I just want to say thank you to all of you and to the Federation. I am really proud of Waymo's focus on accessibility. And we're so grateful to be constantly learning from our writers and local and national disability groups. And I think together, we will just continue to be dedicated to bringing more accessible autonomous driving to the world. So thank you. More about the dynamic 2023 convention by Norma Crosby. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Norma Crosby. From the editor, this is the second article from our Texas affiliate president talking about the wonderful things we will find in Houston. Reacting to what folks asked about her last article, she addresses the issue of how to cut costs and gives us information about tempting tours. Since my last article, I have gotten several calls from people who want to attend the convention but have concerns about cost. I won't sugarcoat it. Travel to conventions can cost a chunk of change. So I wanted to use my time with you this month to talk about some ways of saving money. These suggestions won't make the convention experience free, but I hope they will help as you try to find ways of attending on a budget. Accessing reasonably priced food is one of the best ways to save money when traveling, and you are lucky this year because our downtown area boasts a number of nearby restaurants. Our affiliate is developing a free restaurant guide that will give you some options for inexpensive food. It will also offer options that cost a little more if you want to go out for a special meal or get tired of cheap eats and have a little extra cash in your pocket. You'll find copies of our guide at the Texas Information Table that will be open during the early days of the convention. Come by and grab a copy. Of course, Restaurants outside our hotels aren't the only option for saving money. Many seasoned convention-goers do some grocery shopping to save dollars during their stay. Randall's is a local grocery chain, and one of its stores is less than a mile and a half from the Hilton and a similar distance from the Marriott. The address is 2225 Louisiana Street. The chain does offer delivery, so you might be able to save a rideshare fare or a walk in the Texas sun by using that option. I haven't found an app for this store, but you can order at randalls.com. Every red-blooded Texan will tell you that the best grocery store in the world is HEB. Featuring all national brands and some of the best store brand products anywhere, HEB is the go-to place for groceries, bakery and deli items, fresh tortillas, and lots of other stuff. There isn't a store downtown, but one is a little more than three miles away. The address is 3663 Washington Avenue. HEB offers delivery service and curbside pickup through their iOS and Android apps. Having said that, I recommend you consider making an in-person trip. I promise you'll find some things you didn't know you needed. With the development of delivery apps, shopping for convention snacks, or all the items you forgot to bring is easier than ever. You likely already know about DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats, but I'll add one more to your list. Favor is owned by HEB, but they deliver from restaurants and pharmacies just like some of the other apps do. You can find the app in both app stores by searching for Favor. Another way to save money when ordering through delivery apps is to get together with friends to do one order instead of two or three. Delivery apps are convenient and they can save travel costs, but they do stack on fees and request tips for the runners. So working with friends can help to save even more money. If you need to pick up something from the pharmacy, you can find two nearby CVS pharmacy locations. They are located at 2410 Polk Street and 300 Milam Street. There is also a Walgreens at 2612 Smith Street. These stores all offer in-store or delivery options. In some cases, the delivery may be offered through third-party apps. 
Do you occasionally run out of food for your guide dog during the convention? Of course, most of the grocery stores I mentioned above can help with that, but I thought it would be good to share a pet store location as well. The nearest pet store is the PetSmart at 1907 Taylor Street, about two and a half miles from our headquarters hotel. About a third of a mile from both the Hilton and the Marriott, you'll find the highlight at Houston Center. This venue doesn't include much in the way of shopping, but it does have some food options that should be pretty affordable, and even though getting there might be a little hot, I know you can make it because you were strong-willed federationists with a desire to save money and a big appetite. Chick-fil-A, Otto's Barbecue, Leaf and Grain, Duzo's Dumplings and Noodles, Simon's Cafe, Salada, Burritos, Burritos, Potbelly Sandwich, and a couple of other options can be found here. The address is 1200 McKinney Street. Under the streets of Houston is a seven-mile tunnel system. This underground includes shopping and personal service options, and it also includes restaurants and fast food. The tunnels are only open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on weekdays, but once you learn how to find an entrance, you should be able to find a few lunch options. Our restaurant list will include some information about how to find these underground gems, because trying to explain the tunnels here would be a lot. Hotel food can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. If you look carefully at hotel menus, you can usually find some small entrees or lighter fare that is more affordable. Another money-saving tip I have learned is to find an entree or sandwich that is pretty big and split it with someone who is also trying to save some bucks. I've tried to offer you some ways of cutting food in this article, but one of the other big expenses associated with attending the convention is your hotel room. President Riccobono and John Bergman always look out for us when negotiating hotel rates but we know that even $119 a night plus tax can be a lot for many of our members. So I'll offer one more tip. It isn't one you haven't thought about, I'm sure. Find one or more roommates. Maybe you aren't used to sharing a room, so the thought of including a roommate in your plans may seem scary. Don't think of it that way. Think of it as an adventure and a way to make new friends. I was once able to attend a convention by rooming with three women that I didn't know. I wasn't sure how it would work, but we managed. After all, it was only one week. It was a great experiment in cooperation. I made new friends, and best of all, making the sacrifice allowed me to attend a convention that I wouldn't have been able to attend without their generous help. Was it worth the inconvenience? It most certainly was. We are in the process of wrapping up plans for our tours. The plan is to tour Space Center Houston and the Houston Museum of Natural Science and to take in a ball game at Minute Maid Park, known in these parts as the Juice Box. You can register for any of these starting May 1 at https colon slash slash nfbtx.org slash tours. This link will not go live until that date. The deadline for registration and payment will be June 15, unless tour tickets are sold out before that date. The Houston Museum of Natural Science tour will happen on July 1. We are still negotiating the best date for the Space Center Houston tour, but it should be June 30 or July 1. The game between the Astros and the Seattle Mariners will occur on July 7. That means those wishing to attend should plan their departure after that date. I hope these suggestions make a difference to you because I want to have the opportunity to welcome you into the heart of Texas. Remember to call us if you need us. You can reach our affiliate by calling 281-968-7733. Hashtag NFB23 Give 20 Drawing IRA provides challenge grant. Each year, thousands of Federation members contribute before and during National Convention to various funds that support blind people. 
In 2023, your generosity is still needed to fund our great programs. When you give $20 or more between May 1 and July 6, 3 p.m. Central Time, you will be entered into the Give 20 Convention Drawing. Each $20 increment is a chance to win. Even better, Ira, the leading provider of visual interpreting, has generously offered to double your dollars by matching up to $25,000. My mom sent me an application to speak at my high school's upcoming graduation. Since the application was not accessible, I placed a free call to Ira and had the information I needed to fill it out in minutes. I appreciate that Ira provides information access when other methods are inefficient for me, and I appreciate Ira's support for the National Federation of the Blind. When you contribute to Give 20, you'll be entered to win round-trip transportation for two for the 2024 NFB National Convention, hotel at convention, registration and banquet tickets for two, $1,000 in walking around cash, or $2,000 cash. The campaign supports several funds. Kenneth Jernigan Fund. The proceeds from this fund are used to bring attendees to their first national convention. It is named for Dr. Jernigan, who planned our conventions for more than 40 years and who did so much to make them what they are today. Sun Fund. These funds are being set aside for a rainy day. White Cane Fund. These dollars go directly to the General Treasury of the Federation. Tenbrook Fund. These dollars go to the Tenbrook Memorial Fund, which owns the property at 200 East Wells at Jernigan Place in Baltimore for the benefit of blind people. How to contribute and qualify. You must specify a fund to enter the drawing. You can do this by using our Give 20 online donation form, available at nfb.org slash monitor links, or in the memo if giving by check. Choose one of the funds outlined above. Your donation will be counted for the drawing regardless of which fund you designate. If you are not sure which fund to elect, please select our White Cane Fund as it allows the most flexibility to meet changing organizational needs. Give to the hashtag NFB23 campaign online by using our Give20 contribution form. Link available at nfb.org slash monitor links. Give via phone by calling our donation line at 410-659-9314, extension 2430. Send a check to National Federation of the Blind, Jernigan Institute, 200 East Wells Street, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Be sure to have hashtag Give20 and the fund you are donating to in the memo. Note, the drawing is for individuals and is not intended for contributions by divisions, state affiliates, or chapters. Help us share the Federation with others. Thank you for your generosity. Resolution Reminders by Donald Porterfield A photo appears on the page, the caption, Donald Porterfield. From the editor, one of the toughest jobs one can have at our national convention is to chair the National Federation of the Blind's Resolutions Committee. Our longtime chair, Sharon Manecki, did a wonderful job, one performed with such distinction that many Federationists have never known another person to occupy this job. Work starts before the convention with advertising the process, where to send resolutions, and the deadline for receiving them. Then the chair must detail the exceptions. Oh yes, we must have exceptions when we have rules. Then comes seeing that each resolution's meaning is clear, that the grammar is correct, and then getting the resolutions to the committee for its consideration and possible changes prior to the convention. Next comes chairing the committee meeting, seeing that all of the resolutions are read and voted on, and then getting them to the staff who will be responsible for moving them forward so they become the reality we want. Donald Porterfield is the new chair of this committee. 
Like many new folks, he has large shoes to fill, but he is smart, enthusiastic, and very accustomed to doing a lot of work. Here is what he has to say about the resolutions process. Do you want to make a difference in the lives of blind people today and in the future? Do you think we should change a government policy, take a stand concerning an agency for the blind, or create new regulations? If you do, consider writing a resolution. Here are a few reminders to help you, as well as some questions to think about when writing a resolution. Has a resolution already been written on your subject? If so, are you really adding something new? Is the resolution necessary, or would a letter from the national president accomplish your goal? For example, a letter from the national president commending an organization might be a better alternative than a resolution. Did you do your research to ensure the accuracy of the resolution? If the subject of the resolution would be of interest to a division, did you discuss your resolution with the division president? If you need some pointers on the format or construction of a resolution, consult the article Time to Write Resolutions in the May 2021 edition of the Braille Monitor. Please be mindful of our deadlines. To ensure that your resolution will be considered by the committee, please send it to President Riccobono or to me by June 1, 2023, one month before the committee meeting. Since things are always busy leading up to the convention, we appreciate you sending them earlier. If you send a resolution to me by email and do not receive a response acknowledging your email in two or three days, please call me at 520-850-2180 or send it again. If you miss the deadline, you must get three members of the committee to sponsor your resolution and then get it to the chairman before the meeting begins. I will be pleased to accept resolutions by email at resolutions at nfb.org or by mail at 7360 East Vector, V-A-C-T-O-R, Ranch, T-R-L, Tucson, Arizona, 85715. All resolutions will be placed on the NFB website shortly before the committee meets at convention on July 1. This procedure will give the membership a chance to look over the resolutions before the meeting and lobby the committee members to support or defeat the resolutions. The job of the membership is to make sure the committee has resolutions to consider. I look forward to receiving your resolution. How the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act has turned me into an impassioned advocate by Debbie Wonder. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Debbie Wonder. From the editor, Debbie is the president of the Diabetes Action Network and her commitment to helping diabetics realize they can manage their diabetes is second to none. Her confidence in pressuring the Congress of the United States is a work in progress but she has it on her radar, as she clearly says here. We need the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, and she's going to give it her all to see we get it. Talking about laws and the Congress is intimidating, but the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act forced me to move into the uncomfortable and what, for me, was once the unthinkable area of public policy. I am an insulin-dependent diabetic. I know lots of us because I serve as the president of the Diabetes Action Network, DAN. I have been pushed out of my comfort zone in this position, to which I was elected by my peers. Others began trusting me to advocate on their behalf. Drugs with inaccessible labels, medications that are difficult or impossible to measure, and blood sugar monitoring equipment all conspire to make blind people dependent on others. Some of these things are changing. We can now measure our insulin and other medications, and many of those medications are now labeled accessibly. Far too often, getting the technology we need is still difficult and sometimes impossible. 
Monitoring blood sugar used to take a needle stick, putting blood on a strip, and then inserting that strip into a machine. A blind person would hope all the while that they got enough blood to be measured, because doing so was difficult. If not, they would have to resign themselves to the pain of going back to step one. Now, there are at least two continuous glucose monitoring devices that require a stick only once every 10 or 14 days. The catch is that the readers sold for these sensors aren't usable without vision. Thankfully, those of us with smartphones can read the sensors to measure our blood sugar and be alerted when our levels are dangerously low or unhealthily high. We determine how much insulin to take, usually through shots, based on these readings. The better way to regulate blood sugar is through the use of insulin pumps, devices that quickly give insulin before blood sugar varies enough to require much medication. A person must wait until blood sugar goes above 180 before injecting a shot to drop it to 120 or less. The insulin pump begins the flow of insulin when the sugar starts rising and stops when it starts returning to the desired level. This does a far better job of keeping blood sugar within an acceptable range, resulting in less damage and a longer life. This is great technology, but not so much for blind people. No unit on the market talks. Not one reliably beeps to indicate the increment of the level being adjusted. Few are easy to load with insulin or to monitor when additional insulin is required. Of the few blind people I know who use insulin pumps, even fewer can do so independently. For many of us, the challenges and dangers are just too great. The problem is more than caring for ourselves. I was my mother's caretaker for a time. She needed me to administer oxygen and many medications. Neither of the machines she used gave a single clue as to the way a blind person should regulate their output. Often she was unable to make these adjustments for herself, so I gambled. Having to guess and to hope that I was right was nerve-wracking. A single wrong guess would have put her in danger. The Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act can change all of this. When the law mandates that devices must talk, beep, and have accessible controls, every blind person will have more independence. But this law will change more than just technology. It will help change the perception that blind patients cannot take care of themselves and must consequently be taken care of. It will change the idea that blindness equals dependence, and that dependence means reliance on others for important medical care. The passage of this act will attack both the visible problem of inaccessibility and the additional problem that causes inaccessibility to not only exist, but to persist. We must take charge of our technology rather than be subjected to continual dependence because of it. We must do it for ourselves and for those we love who need us. Therefore, I will take on the law, participate in its introduction, push for its progression through the Congress, and press as it moves from a statute to an implemented law complete with regulations and adherence. Then I will stop talking about the need. I will start talking about the way we use the law. We will put technology to work for us, rather than making us victims in the beautiful age of digital machines that should bring access to all of us the world over. Back to Notre Dame. An address delivered by President Mark Maurer, National Federation of the Blind, at the banquet of the annual convention, Phoenix, Arizona, July 2, 1987. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Mark Maurer. From the editor, One of the things we do in the Braille Monitor is tell our readers what is happening in the present. Another is to dream together about what we will do our best to make happen in the future. But an equally important function of this publication is to remind us of our past, to rejoice in our victories, and to understand just how much we still have to do in order to have equity or equality of opportunity. 
For many of us, living each day not only means dealing with what is said and done, but reacting for better or worse to what has in the past been said and done. Not a week goes by without me remembering my grandmother telling me that, when I was an adult, the welfare would have to visit me each day to make sure my teeth were brushed and my face was clean. I was dismissive until one day she stopped me before I went out the door, put a rag on my face and told me about the toothpaste that she was removing. I was haunted until I realized that the sequence should not be to wash the face and then brush the teeth, but should be reversed. So there are times in my life when that memory still haunts me, when I secretly wonder if I can really be as independent as I think. Though I have never been to Notre Dame, I share the experience of going back. In my case, it is back to grandmother's house, the toothbrush, and the washcloth. I hope readers enjoy the first of the banquet speeches presented by former President Maurer. Once in a great while, there comes a dramatic change, an event so striking in its effect that forever after, a new direction is inevitable. But more often, change does not have the appearance of drama. Instead, there is a slight shift in emphasis, an alteration of mood. Often, the change that tips the scale is so slight that at the time it occurs, it is completely unrecognized. Only later, with the long view of history, can it be seen that this was the particular moment, the watershed, the critical juncture. Today, the world, whether Christian or non-Christian, counts time from the birth of Christ. But 20 centuries ago, at the time the event occurred, the vast majority of Roman citizens were totally unaware of it. Even if they had known, it would have seemed of no significance. Fire is generally regarded as the essence of drama. Flames shoot dozens, even hundreds of feet into the air. But fire is merely oxidation at a rapid rate. Although it is momentarily spectacular, its consequences are far less significant than those of other forms of oxidation. In the total range of rust, rot, leaf mold, and metabolism, fire is, so to speak, only a flash in the pan, a momentary aberration. Of vastly more importance to the people of the world are the slow, unspectacular chemical changes which take place every day the oxidation of millions of tons of matter occurring so slowly as to pass without comment. This does not mean that drama is unimportant, that fire can be dismissed with a shrug and a yawn, nor does it mean that the actions of everyday life have no effect or drama. The events which cause hope and despair, joy and depression are of tremendous significance even when they pass unnoticed and without remark. The process of quiet but dramatic change is an integral part of being human. It is also the very essence of the National Federation of the Blind. The cumulative effect of the drama without fanfare, which is reflected in the growth of our movement and the lives of its members, is perhaps more spectacular than any other single event which the decades have brought, regardless of how pivotal and far-reaching that event may have seemed at the moment. In 1940, Dr. Jacobus Tenbrook and a handful of others formed the National Federation of the Blind. 
Only later was it fully recognized that these pioneers had done something so dramatic that the lives of the blind throughout the world would never again be the same. The spirit which came into being at our founding in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania took root quietly. There was no roll of drums, no clap of thunder, no blazing fire to celebrate the event. Only Dr. Tenbrook and the small group who gathered with him to dream and plan for the future and take the first steps toward making it happen. They did not, indeed could not, know what the final outcome would be. They were people of discernment and tremendous insight, but they could not have imagined that from that humble beginning would spring the organized blind movement of today, the powerful 50,000-member National Federation of the Blind, which we have become and now are. Still, they believed that a future could be created, that the years would not slip away with only emptiness for the blind, that it was possible for the blind to build and grow and come together in one great family. That dream, that faith has partly been realized, but the road stretches far ahead and the rest is for us to do. And we will do it. We will do it by education and unspectacular change if we can. We will do it by more dramatic means if we must, but we will do it. As Dr. Jernigan has so often said, we are simply no longer willing to be second-class citizens. For 47 years, we have been working quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, to win our way to first-class status in society. There have, of course, been public demonstrations, dramatic confrontations, and historic documents, but these have not been the primary vehicles of change and accomplishment. Instead, the individual hopes and dreams of blind people, the cumulative effect of their unspectacular daily decisions and actions have come together to create the positive and powerful force which is represented here tonight. No one who is in this room or who is in any way connected with affairs of the blind needs to be told what that force is. It is the National Federation of the Blind. When I joined the Federation in 1969, there had already been 29 years of hard, dedicated work, and the results were plain. The Federation had built a solid record of accomplishment. There was a body of literature about blindness which undergirded and gave direction to our efforts. The ideas and basic assumptions contained in the writings of Dr. Tenbrook and Dr. Jernigan had been put to the test. There was no doubt that blind people could compete successfully in business or the professions. The programs of the Federation had demonstrated that this was not speculation but fact. The theories worked. Blind people got jobs. The question was not if or whether but how and when. The problem of 1969 was to expand the scope of our activities. We needed more than a demonstration. We needed opportunity, and not just for a few. 
1969, as I came to be part of the movement, I did not know that these things were true. Only in retrospect did I know it. In one sense, I did not, when I joined this movement, understand the organization at all. But even in my ignorance, the Federation spoke to me with quiet force. For the first time in my life, what I thought made a difference. It was absolutely astonishing to me that this was so, that anyone would do something because I, a blind person, wanted it done. I did not understand the reason for such unusual behavior or appreciate its significance. And although I was fascinated with the Federation, I must confess that I did not think it would change my life, at least not very much. As I was growing up, I, like all others, blind and sighted alike, was conditioned my, by my culture and society. I hoped that there would be something interesting or important for me to do, but I was afraid that blindness might keep me from it. When I came to the Federation, I found blind people working and making substantive contributions. I was told that blindness need not be a terrible limitation. I hoped that the Federation was right, but I had doubts. Nevertheless, I said that I believed, and I tried to act as though I did. It was only later that I realized, with something of a shock, that the belief had come to be a reality in my life, and a good while before I recognized it. Dr. Jernigan taught me about blindness and the organized blind movement, and there were others. I talked with blind people who were lawyers, teachers, factory workers, and farmers. At Federation meetings, blind leaders spoke of the power of collective action. Soon I began to repeat what those around me were saying, that blindness could be reduced to the level of a physical nuisance, that with proper training and opportunity, the average blind person could do the average job in the average place of business. In short, that it was respectable to be blind. Then I went to college at Notre Dame, and it was a sudden plunge into ice water. On a campus with 6,000 other students, I found myself completely isolated and alone. I could not find a single other person who understood what I thought I understood or believed what I said I believed, the simple truth that blind people had capacity and could compete. I met no one else who thought it was respectable to be blind. The coach in the athletic department told me that I should not take any gym classes because I might get hurt. When signing up for an accounting course, I was praised by the professor for my great courage. Then, without even changing gears, the professor promised me a good grade. I got the idea that I did not have to earn it that just being there and being courageous would be enough. I worked hard to deserve that grade, and I worked hard for the other grades I got, too. It was an unforgettable experience, and although I have physically returned to that campus only once since graduation, I have, sociologically speaking, been back to Notre Dame many times through the years. That first semester, I learned with real force I might say with dramatic force that blindness could not stop me, but I also learned that prejudice and misunderstanding might. Something had to be done, 
the situation was intolerable. All of those professors and students had to be told, I needed help. I needed the National Federation of the Blind. As the years at the university passed, I became increasingly active in our movement. My priorities crystallized and became clear. After college, I did graduate work, and in 1977, I finished law school. In 1978, with the help of Federation members, I got a job in the office of the General Counsel at the Civil Aeronautics Board. With my philosophy and idealism in hand, I went to that job, willing and anxious to work. I wanted to give of my time, my effort, my energy. I wanted to advance myself and the cause of the blind. The Civil Aeronautics Board made United States civil aviation policy. Here, I thought, is an opportunity for me to do something really useful. However, I soon discovered that a pattern existed, a pattern which reminded me of the professor who told me that I was courageous and promised me a good grade. I felt right at home. It was just like being back at Notre Dame. My assignments were almost always routine. If there was a trip to London for an international negotiation, somebody else was asked to go. If a hearing officer needed to take testimony in a small town to determine the feasibility of air service, I was never sent. These assignments, calculated to vary the routine, were highly prized and much sought after. Others went while I stayed home and was courageous. Sometimes there was not enough routine work to fill my day, so I was left to occupy my time as I chose. My superiors would have been content if I had spent my time listening to the radio or reading. They would have been content, but I would not have been content. I did not want. I did not want the rest of my life to be a sham and a deception, a guaranteed succession of endless raises and lack of meaningful work. Discrimination is not necessarily confined to the job interview or the entry level. It can also happen after employment is permanent and safe. My job with the federal government was absolutely secure. It would have lasted until retirement through a long and restful life. There was something else. We all tend to be conditioned by our environment. I knew that if I stayed long enough and if my salary became high enough, I might begin to succumb to temptation and rationalize. I might become accustomed to the lack of useful activity and gradually lose my initiative, my sense of values, my perspective, my willingness to leave, and my soul. Not only had the Federation taught me about blindness, but also about self-examination, objectivity, and perspective. In 1981, I left the Civil Aeronautics Board to start my own law practice. I knew that I might starve, but I also knew that if I starved, it would be a starvation of the body and not of the soul. I knew that I would be free and not a token or a cipher. Slavery does not have to be a matter of chains and whips. 
It can also be a captivity of a, the mind and a shackling of the spirit. Every person in this room can give testimony to that. We in the Federation have cut our teeth on it, and we never stop learning it. On a daily basis, we continue to teach it to ourselves and each other, and we give it in strong doses to new recruits. This is why some who do not understand our philosophy call us militant. In the practice of law, my dream that I might do something worthwhile and useful came true. Again, Federation members and leaders helped and encouraged me. As part of my practice, I frequently found myself representing blind persons. The textbooks tell us that American law is based on fairness and justice, regardless of who is involved or what the circumstances may be. My job was to help make this principle applicable to the blind as well as the sighted. When I represented blind people, my opponents were often major employers, airlines, departments of government, or agencies doing work with the blind. Although the approaches of these different entities might vary, their opinions about blindness usually did not. Whether it was an airline, an employer, a department of government, or a service agency for the blind. What they said about blindness was always just about the same. I felt right at home. It was exactly like being back at Notre Dame. The blind are courageous. They will get a good grade, no need to work, and plenty of meaningless assignments. Of course, when I insisted on equal treatment for my clients, attitudes hardened. Those across the table now thought the blind, and that included me, were ungrateful, unreasonable, and unrealistic, not courageous at all, but just plain radical and militant. If, after my experiences at Notre Dame and the Civil Aeronautics Board, anything else was needed to confirm me in my opinion that the National Federation of the Blind was not only needed but necessary, I found it in the practice of law. It is not that people mean to be unreasonable or that they are deliberately cruel. Rather, it is that they have the ancient fear of the dark and that they equate blindness with darkness and darkness with evil and lack of ability to perform. Despite the progress we have made, and we have made a great deal of it, regressive attitudes about blindness are unfortunately still the norm. The director of sales for LSAFE Hawaii Incorporated, a company that markets safes, writes to say that he is selling a special safe for the blind. He says, I would like to take this opportunity to acquaint you with this product as it seems to be particularly well suited to the needs of the blind. This safe is operated by means of a combination that is entered via a keypad identical to a standard telephone keypad. There are no keys required for normal operation and therefore nothing to lose. I would like to make the members of your organization aware of this product. The conclusion is inevitable. This man believes that the blind, incompetent as we are, cannot keep track of the simplest objects, including keys. To help the unfortunate blind, he wants to sell us special safes, 
but one wonders if he understands the implications of his own letter. If blind people cannot manage keys, how can we collect anything of sufficient value to put into his safe? A radio commercial from the Corning Glass Company for Corlon Lenses opens with a man speaking to a coat rack. He does not possess Corlon lenses, so he mistakes the coat rack for an assistant in the eye doctor's office. As the commercial proceeds, the man causes a stir by almost sitting inadvertently on the lap of a lady in the waiting room. Without the lenses, he cannot see her. Finally, this poor unfortunate, blinded by the absence of Corlon lenses, attempts to leave the office through a closet and becomes completely befuddled. Sight, according to this advertisement, is required to prevent a person from mistaking a coat rack for a human, from becoming lost in a closet, and from social blunders such as sitting in other people's laps. The inescapable conclusion is that blindness means almost total helplessness with a dash of buffoonery thrown in for good measure. I cannot recall having spoken recently to a coat rack, and I doubt that you can. Nor do I think the reason why blind people sit in laps is usually that they do not know what they are doing. <laughs> we are frequently exploited by companies which take advantage of the stereotypes about us to sell products regardless of the truth of their claims or the harm they do. The Conica Medical Corporation of Wayne, New Jersey provides darkroom equipment to hospitals not long ago, Conica became aware of two blind people working as darkroom technicians in a Florida medical center. As a gesture of goodwill, Conica issued a press release about the valuable work of these two blind employees. The release said in part, visually impaired technicians find rewarding careers at medical center. The article went on to say, Imagine, if you can, what it would be like to live without the ability to see the world around you. Simple tasks like walking, eating, and reading would take on a whole new complexity. As I studied this press release, I felt conflicting emotions. The headline tells us that blind people at work in rewarding careers at a hospital and even though I think blind people are often pushed toward the dark room in the mistaken belief that the absence of ordinary light makes this job especially suitable for them, I recognize that dark room work is a useful activity in a competitive occupation. But the body of the release ruins the headline and takes it all away. It declares that the blind have trouble with the most mundane tasks is it really so hard for us to walk? And how about eating? We don't seem to have had much trouble at this banquet.
Of course, reading requires the use of alternative techniques such as braille, recordings, sighted readers, and the like. But even here, the situation is more a matter of coping than crying. The message of the companies in private industry is based on a common theme. They say that blind people are different and less able than others. Even when these companies attempt to be positive and offer commendation, they say that we cannot do anything as well as the sighted and that we are very limited, very special, very deprived, very brave, and very subnormal. People with this kind of attitude refer to the blind and other groups as handicapable and physically challenged, and they use other such cutesy euphemisms, euphemisms which are uncalled for, unhealthy, unhelpful, unconvincing, and unbecoming. But if private industry is uninformed, having relatively little exposure to the blind and facts about blindness, surely the agents doing work with the blind are more enlightened. One would think so, but as we have learned to our cost, the exact opposite is often the case. Consider, for instance, the South Carolina Commission for the Blind. That agency, was brought into being in the mid-1960s through the efforts of Don Capps and the other leaders of the National Federation of the Blind of South Carolina. There was also assistance from beyond the borders of the state. Dr. Jernigan went to South Carolina to testify before the committee with the, which the legislature had established to study the matter. And a leading South Carolina legislator came to Iowa to examine the programs which Dr. Jernigan was operating at the State Commission for the Blind. Justifiably, the blind of South Carolina regard the Commission for the Blind as theirs. Imagine then how they feel and how responsible staff members at the South Carolina Commission feel when an official publication of the commission embodies the worst of the harmful stereotypes about blindness and is massively circulated throughout the state. They are understandably outraged, but let the brochure speak for itself. It consists of 58 so-called helpful suggestions for families and friends of blind persons, grouped under six headings as follows. General, with people, in the house, traveling, guiding, and at the table. <laughs> you may have thought that the proposition in the Konica news release that eating for a blind person takes on special complexity was simply to be dismissed as the chatter of a well-intentioned kook. Listen then to the experts. Here is what the South Carolina brochure says about eating. Twelve helpful suggestions are listed under the heading, At the Table. I can do no better than give them to you as they come word for word from the brochure. Here they are. One, maintain usual standards. Two, Tell him what is in the dish or on the plate which is being passed. Three, don't pass things in cross in front of a blind person. Expect him to share in the passing of food. 
Four, address the blind person directly so that he will know that he is being asked to pass something. Five, mention what is on his plate so that he will know how to handle the food. Six, at first, if he wishes it, cut meat and butter the bread. Seven, Get in the habit of placing the meat to the front of his plate. It is easier to cut there. Eight, use good-sized napkins. Nine, don't make unnecessary comments when food is spilled. <laughs> 10. If food is spilled on clothing, mention it casually so that it can be removed at once. <laughs> 11. Ask the individual if he wants sugar or cream as these are difficult for him to serve himself unless the sugar is in lump form and the cream in individual pitchers. 12. When serving food, mention where it has been placed so the individual will not accidentally knock over a glass, paper cup, sherbet, cup and saucer, etc. Although these helpful suggestions for families and friends cannot by any stretch of the imagination be called subtle, the pamphlet does not say precisely what it means. Let me offer the writers at the South Carolina Commission for the Blind some helpful suggestions of my own. Let me say in clear statements what their pamphlet necessarily implies and what, though they might deny it, I think they really mean. Keep in mind that they are talking about you and me. Here, then, is the truthful rewrite. Maintain usual standards. You do not need to be sloppy just because a blind person, who will undoubtedly be sloppy, is at the table. <laughs> Don't pass things across in front of the blind person. Expect him to share in the passing of food. The blind person, just like a three-year-old, will be flattered if you let him help. If he isn't motivated by the flattery, you may have to prod him a little. <laughs> Mention what is on his plate so that he will know how to handle the food. The blind person is probably not accustomed to eating in polite society and will likely not be able to identify food without your help. <laughs> in any case, it is your responsibility, not the blind person's. Use good-sized napkins. Of course, the blind person will be messy and spill things, and you must look out for him or her. After all, it is your responsibility. Certainly, the blind person is not in charge. You are. Ask the individual if he wants sugar or cream. These are difficult for him to serve himself unless the sugar is in lump form and the cream in individual pitchers. After all, the blind person can't ask for what he wants. 
you must take the initiative and take care of him. When I first came across this brochure, I felt that I had gone back to Notre Dame, for it deals with something much more far-reaching than table talk. It embodies a whole way of life, an entire philosophy, and a complete cultural tradition. Through every line is the implicit assumption that somebody else is in charge and that even if the home and the table belong to the blind person, he or she is no longer in control, no longer the host, no longer an equal among equals. If you are still not convinced, after all you have heard, consider these other samples from the pamphlet. Here they are exactly as they appear. Talk and act naturally when with a blind person. Be frank. If he needs to shine his shoes, tell him so. Do not needlessly hurry a blind person. He will appreciate a calm approach to the matter in hand. Let him do everything possible for himself. In helping a blind person, do not make him conspicuous by the way you do things. Read his mail promptly and refrain from commenting on the contents of the letter unless requested to do so. A second reading is often appreciated. <laughs> refrain from uncouthness in the presence of a blind person. He can hear you picking your teeth. Be alert, but restrained. Do not startle a blind person needlessly. Don't let a blind person's hand dangle in the air. If obviously it is his purpose to shake hands, grasp his hand and greet him. Don't limit your knowledge and interest in the blind generally to the blind mendicant who is sometimes a social parasite from choice. Do not patronize blind persons. They're just regular people more than you realize. In conversation, address the blind person by name if he is the one expected to reply. Otherwise, he may not know the remark is being directed to him. Leave the possessions of a blind person where they have placed them unless you indicate specifically where they may find them. When traveling, describe interesting and beautiful scenes. Comment casually on sensations which blind persons can enjoy, such as... which blind persons can enjoy, such as pleasant odors, a cooling breeze, the tinkle of a brook, etc. When taking an individual into a restroom, indicate position of toilet,
paper, wash bowl, soap, and towels. When walking with the blind person, mention familiar landmarks so that he can get his bearings. Don't push a blind person ahead of you. Walk straight across the street. To do so diagonally may cause the blind person to trip when reaching the curb. <laughs> there you have in summation the philosophy of the South Carolina Commission for the Blind, and I believe that I have never in all of my life seen such a concentrated dose of distortion and false notions. Is it any wonder that the blind of the state are at war with the agency? How could it be otherwise? I have no doubt that Don Capps and the other federationists in South Carolina will teach the commission a new way of looking at blindness. Our role may not be as limited or our temperament as passive as the South Carolina custodians think. And of course, it is not just South Carolina. There are other agencies in other states. Consider, for instance, the Mary Bryant Home for Blind Men and Women located in Springfield, Illinois. Keep in mind, as I describe this facility to you, that it is not a place exclusively designed for the elderly. It is meant for the young as well. I feel it necessary to make this point since otherwise you might have difficulty believing what you are about to hear. Therefore, I offer in evidence a letter dated March 23, 1987, to directors of rehabilitation agencies in a number of Midwestern states. The letter is signed by the administrator of the Mary Bryant home who has the rather intriguing name of Francis Trees. The letter says, Dear Director, as you are aware, there comes a time in the lives of many visually impaired persons when they are unable to live independently some younger persons return to their homes following their education from a school for the visually impaired. In many cases, these young men and women are returning to homes where both parents are employed outside the home and find themselves staying alone all day with nothing to do. Some older persons no longer have a support system to aid and assist them to live independently. Many are sent inappropriately to nursing homes where they are often endangered by not being able to protect themselves. The Mary Bryant Home is a resource I wish you would consider when it comes to assisting individuals or families to deal with the issue of placement. Currently, our residents range in age from 24 to 96 years of age. Sincerely, Francis Trees, Administrator. As we examine what the Mary Bryant Home says about itself, remember that some of the residents are as young as 24 and that they are at the Mary Bryant facility because, as Administrator Trees says, these young men and women are returning to homes where both parents work outside the home and find themselves staying alone all day with nothing to do. Here are direct quotes 
from the packet of literature sent by Administrator Trees to the rehabilitation directors. The building is rectangular in shape, which allows the residents to walk in a circular pattern for exercise, especially during inclement weather. The home is arranged for convenience on one level, no stairs. Handrails are installed throughout the home. Our full and part-time staff provide round-the-clock service to the residents, seeing to their health, safety, nutritional, recreational, and emotional needs. Leave of absence may be taken by residents for a short period of time, providing the person taking the resident out sign a release of responsibility for injuries, accidents, or illnesses which might occur during the time they are away from the Mary Bryant home. Personal property, other than clothing, may be brought to the home only with the prior approval of the administrator. Food is prohibited in the resident rooms. Beer, wine, and other intoxicating liquors only when approved by the resident's physician, please, and all items of this nature are to be kept at the medicine room, not in resident rooms. <laughs> Incoming calls for residents may be received on the house phones, but it would cause less confusion and less interruption if these calls were to be made between the hours of 1 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. Visiting hours are from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Visits will be restricted when adversely indicated in the opinion of the resident's physician and so documented in the resident's clinical record. Smoking in resident rooms is prohibited for both residents and visitors. Residents who are capable of handling smoking supplies with safety may smoke in the activity room and we request visitors to smoke only in these areas also. There is more, much more, but I think I have given you enough to make the point. Any self-respecting blind person faced with such an outrageous conglomeration of insulting Rules, directive, requirements, and restrictions would walk out the door three minutes after arriving. <laughs> of course, most blind people that I know would resist going to such a facility in the first place. With all of the work we have done to change public attitudes, many people still feel that the blind should live in segregated homes or sometimes nursing homes. In this connection, I recently received the following letter. Dear Sir, my mother has been legally blind for about 20 years. During all that time, she has been in a nursing home in Rochester, Indiana, and she is only 43 years old. She has not in all that time had any training that the blind need. 
such as how to read Braille. The nursing home has been her only world because of her inability to get around. I feel my mother desperately needs help. She needs to be taught the things the blind need to function in society. She is much too young to be in a nursing home. I wonder if the National Federation of the Blind can help in this matter. I don't have money or the know-how to assist her, and I was told maybe you could help. She's want, wanting to get out of the nursing home. Sincerely yours. Twenty years of a person's life is a long time, and for this woman and many others like her, those twenty years are a bleak memory of twisted hell, of desolation, pain, and lack of opportunity. We in the National Federation of the Blind are organized to make it absolutely certain that brochures like the one issued by the South Carolina Commission for the Blind stop being written, that facilities like the Mary Bryant Home either change their philosophy or go out of business, and that blind men and women and that blind men and women have something better to do with their lives that go, than go into nursing homes in their 20s. We are committed to changing public attitudes so that manufacturers will not believe that we cannot keep track of our keys, so that companies can no longer get away with picturing us as helpless and pathetic unless we have eyeglasses, and so that the public will no longer tolerate advertisements which exploit the concept that we are especially suited to work in the dark. We are determined to educate not merely the public at large, but also our fellow blind and ourselves. And of course, we are doing it. On Saturday, May 23rd of this year, I did not physically leave Baltimore. But on that day, as I have so often done, I went back to Notre Dame. I was in a clothing store, trying on the very suit I am wearing tonight. At a critical juncture in the fitting, the salesman said to the sighted person who was with me, can you take his shoes off? <laughs> I suppose I don't need to tell you that I did not walk barefooted to Notre Dame. I removed my own shoes. The changes we are making in public attitudes often seem slow and long in coming, but like oxidation, they remove more trash and debris than the flames of spectacular conflagration. Since our founding in 1940, we have removed a tremendous amount of garbage, some by conflagration and a great deal more by steady oxidation. We also, even those of us who have never been to Indiana, continue to return to Notre Dame, but thankfully the visits are becoming fewer and farther between. For those of us who are blind, the world holds more promise today than ever before in history, 
It is not that incidents of the kind I have described are more numerous now than they formerly were. Rather, it is that we are more aware of them and more prepared to take appropriate action. Once they were universal, now they are only usual. But since 1940, there has been a new element, a new force which has changed the balances. You know what it is as well as I do. It is the National Federation of the Blind. As everyone in this room knows, we are thoroughly organized, fully aware of where we have been and where we are going, and absolutely unstoppable. No power on earth can now send us back or keep us from going the rest of the way to freedom and first-class citizenship. We know it, our opponents know it, and the public at large is beginning to learn it. As we approach the end of the 20th century, our mood is optimistic and our hearts are joyous. My brothers and my sisters, let us march to the future together. Monitor Miniatures, news from the Federation family. How to pay for your convention hotel stay. This helpful information comes from Tony Cobb, who for many years served as a fixture in the lobby of our convention hotels. Here is an important warning for those who may be considering how to pay for their stay. Every year at our national convention, we have serious trouble with use of debit cards or cash payments at hotel check-in, and having worked to solve these problems for years, I can tell you that they can nearly ruin the convention week for those experiencing them. Planning to attend our national convention should therefore include thinking seriously about how to pay the hotel, and I cannot urge you strongly enough to avoid using cash or a debit card as your payment method. Doing so may seem convenient, but you should not do so. If you do not have a credit card of your own to use, instead, prevail upon a close friend or family member to let you use one just for convention. Here's why. If you are paying in actual currency, most hotels will want enough cash up front at check-in to cover your room and tax charges for the entire stay, plus a one-time advance incidentals deposit to cover meals, telephone calls, internet service, and other things you may charge to your room. The unused portion of the incidentals deposit may be returned at checkout or by mail after departure. Understand, however, that if your incidentals charges exceed the incidentals deposit credited, you are responsible for payment of the full balance at checkout. The total can end up being a very large sum indeed. If you use a debit card, however, you are really at a potential painful disadvantage. The hotel will put a hold on money in your bank account linked to the debit card to cover the estimated balance of your stay, that is, for the entire week's room and tax charges plus a one-time incidentals deposit to cover meals, movies, and so on charged to your room. You should be aware that the hold can therefore be a considerable amount of money and that you will not have access to that amount for any other purchases or payments with your card. Hotels sometimes also put authorizations on credit cards, by the way, but those are not often a problem unless they exceed your card's credit limit. Holds can remain in effect for three to five days or even a week after you check out. If you have pre-authorized payments from your bank account, for example your monthly mortgage payment, or if you try to make a purchase with your debit card and it's refused, the hold from the hotel can cause you trouble or result in very large overdraft fees for payments you thought you had money in your account to cover. 
I have seen this hit some of our members in the form of hundreds of dollars in overdraft fees. This means that, if you use a debit card, you would have to be certain you have a high enough balance in your checking account when you come to convention to cover any debit card holds. This is a perilous practice since charges may exceed your estimate by a considerable amount. Some frequent travelers even open a separate checking account used only for debits like these. Remember, a hold is going to be placed on your debit card regardless of how you end up paying the bill, and the hold is not necessarily released right away, even if you pay with a credit card or cash when you check out of the hotel. Planning ahead in this area can ensure an untroubled week at convention, leaving you free to enjoy fully the world's largest and most exciting meeting of the blind. NFB Pledge I pledge to participate actively in the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind to achieve equality, opportunity, and security for the blind, to support the policies and programs of the Federation, and to abide by its constitution.